and please open to 1 Corinthians 7. First Corinthians 7, 1 through 16 is our passage this morning. Uh, while you're turning there, just, just a word. Um, I want to encourage you, one, to come to the member meeting tonight if you're a member. Um, really important kind of new direction for some of our ministries, an exciting new direction, so we'd love to have you there for that. Uh, also, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been growing as a church, um, and with that comes a lot of young little lives around us, which we thank the Lord for. Uh, and with that comes a need for more helpers to help those young little ones. We need some help in children's ministry. Again, I told you a number of weeks ago that we've been having uh, around 30 kids in just the 8 to 10-year-old class. That's quite a stewardship the Lord's given us. Uh, so I'm asking you to consider joining the children's ministry for a commitment of maybe a Sunday a month. Please, please, please do that. Retired folks, you've got nothing but time. <laughs> nothing but time. Uh, <laughs> I know it, your schedule fills up, but it would be great um, for those of you who uh, aren't serving uh, the body to maybe serve in this way. This is a great um, providence God has given us. Uh, in thinking about this, I thought of Kurt, Tony, Susanna, just three names, uh, people that led me in children's ministry and then even in junior high ministry as I grew up and got older. As many of you know my testimony. I was not a Christian then. I went to church. Uh, and then when I became a Christian in college, I, I kind of looked back, and even now I look back at those people who served me with great fondness. I didn't appreciate it at the time. I do now. Kurt, Susanna, Tony. Uh, I grew up going to uh, churches that were not theologically sound, but those people had a love for passing on the faith of the next generation. Those people were godly people with good doctrine. I still remember Tony teaching us uh, sound doctrine in children's ministry, and it didn't hit my heart until years later, but I look back on those times with faithfulness, uh, with thankfulness for their faithfulness. Think of them, think of my grandparents. Uh, just, just, it's such a big deal in the Scriptures to pass on the faith of the next generation. So I just want to ask you for help there. It is not um, a little task for you to go in there uh, for an hour and a half a month and to serve uh, and then maybe to come out thinking, did they really understand what I was saying? They understand your care for them. And sometimes years later, they look back and connect the dots and see how you were leading them to Christ. So uh, please consider that. If you're interested in that, please see Pastor Jason uh, for more information. And again, please, please do that. All right. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, 
so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as, my, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Because the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? entitled this message, Benefits of Marriage. Benefits of Marriage. We, we come to a new section in 1 Corinthians. We uh, spent a few weeks looking at caring for the temple, caring for our own bodies, caring for the temple or the corporate body of Christ. We looked at that in chapters 5 and 6. Now this chapter starts with these words, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. That phrase, now concerning, is going to come up a few more times in this book. If you look over to chapter 8, it'll say, now concerning food offered to idols. And then if you go to chapter 12, it will say, now concerning spiritual gifts. Why does Paul start those chapters that way? Because these are answers to questions that they had asked him. The Corinthian church has written to him to ask him questions about sex, about food offered to idols, and about spiritual gifts. So much of the second half of the book of 1 Corinthians, or from chapter 7 on, is the answer to the questions that they've been asking the apostles, the Apostle Paul. I'm not sure if you've ever been to a Christian conference or something like that that had a question and answer session. Uh, People a lot of times look forward to those. So a Christian conference oftentimes has people preaching from specific tasks, and then there's a Q&A where people can kind of take everyday life and ask for wisdom on how the Scriptures would speak into maybe that type of situation. It's really helpful, Q&As are. Well, this is the divine Q&A. This is the Apostle speaking on behalf of the Father and the Son to answer questions that this church had. Again, for six chapters, he's been teaching them things that he's wanted them to understand, things about factions in the church, things about guarding the temple, protecting the temple, sexual immorality. And again, speaking of sexual immorality, here comes a question that they have about sex and marriage and celibacy. And so, he starts answering the question. And Paul answers his questions and then kind of preaches a few various different sermons to them as he answers their question. So, they have questions about, you see there in verse 1, their statement is, It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, what what they're saying there is in light of 
in light of what Paul has said to us earlier, and we can even see earlier in the book, but earlier to them about sexual immorality, don't engage in sexual immorality, some of them have concluded, some in the Corinthian church, well, it's good for a man not to, not to have any sort of sexual relationship with any woman, not to even touch a woman. Well, that's uh, an overreaction, if you will, and that's not what Paul's teaching. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. You've made a statement and someone overreacts and assumes you mean something that you don't mean. So if you, you know, innocently post on social media, I'm so thankful for uh, uh, my aunts, my Aunt Martha, my Aunt Lydia. I'm so thankful for my aunts today. You can just see someone on social media say, what do you have against uncles? <laughs> it happens. Trust me, it happens. That's the same type of thing. Don't engage in sexual immorality. Oh, then we shouldn't, then no man, no woman should ever touch anyone. No, enter marriage. Here's where marriage comes into play. And Paul starts talking about marriage throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He'll also talk about singleness briefly in our passage today and then more later on in, uh, in chapter 7. But today for our outline, two reasons marriage is beneficial two reasons marriage is beneficial. And so, uh, again, two-point message, but in the middle, we're going to have a little side note, a little, little rabbit trail that Paul takes us down on singleness, okay? And that will be developed later on, again, as we go through chapter 7 in the coming weeks. But two reasons marriage is beneficial. First, marriage is the place for sexual intimacy in order to guard against sexual immorality. It's a lengthy lengthy point there, but just hear, hear the argument. Marriage is the place for sexual intimacy in order to guard against sexual immorality. You see this in verses 1 through 5, maybe most succinctly stated in verse 2 there, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So, notice my outline isn't the benefits of marriage. That, that would indicate that I was telling you all of the benefits of marriage according to the Scriptures. That's not my aim this morning. There are other benefits in other chapters, in other passages of the Scriptures. My task is to tell you the two benefits named in this passage. So, two benefits, of which there are many, of marriage. The first benefit in this passage is that marriage is the place for sexual intimacy in order to guard against sexual immorality. Now, this is the answer to their question. They're, they're saying, hey, some are saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. And Paul's saying, well, that's not exactly what I was saying. Don't engage in sexual immorality, but you don't need to jump to that conclusion. And then he says here, verse 2, again, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. God has made a way to enjoy sexual intimacy, and it's in the marriage between a husband and a wife. This is the answer to their question. So, marriage is given to help us against temptation to sexual immorality. Now, as, as married people know, it, it's not that temptation completely goes away when you're married, but it is a great help to have a spouse. It's a great help in fighting sexual temptation. Verse 3, 
The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So the husband gives this intimacy to his wife and likewise, Paul says, the wife gives to her husband. That that word conjugal, you can translate it this way, obligatory, owed, that's even a synonym. Her owed rights, his owed rights, his obligatory rights. When he marries, it comes with certain privileges, rights. When she marries, it comes with certain privileges or rights. This is what God is teaching about marriage. Now, today, in today's day and age, we've got a very individualistic view of marriage. We're married as long as it benefits me. The way I am happy and blessed in marriage is is of chief concern. When in the Bible you see Jesus giving himself to a bride, you see self-sacrifice and love and selflessness in marriage. It's no surprise that our culture corrupts that and we start thinking of marriage in individualistic terms. My body, what I want, that's it. But here there's, there's an obligation that we have to one another, right? There's a selflessness that we have toward one another that God has given us in marriage. So again, in an individualistic view of marriage where you're in the relationship just to benefit yourself, if you've got that view, you won't like these passages. You won't like the idea of having to, you know, fulfill someone else's needs or desires. You won't like that because it's all about you. But this is the way of Scripture. This is the way of marriage. It's a giving. It's a loving act, selfless act. Again, this verse speaks of owing sexual intimacy to our spouse. And even as we teach that, even as we go through what the Spirit has inspired in 1 Corinthians 7.3, right now, even in your minds, there might be with some of you all sorts of objections to that based on things you've experienced or maybe situations you're in. You might have these objections. And I would say this, there are so many different questions that come up in a passage like this. Well, what about this situation? I'm in this situation. Well, what about, what would you do here? I can't answer all of those. I don't even know all of them. I know there would be many, but I would say this. This is, this is one of the areas that Christian discipleship is very helpful. All throughout the Scriptures, there is a pointing to counsel, getting wisdom, even in the New Testament, you see Paul helping Timothy. All right, how's this? Okay, all right, there we go. Thanks, Dave. The forces of darkness do, want not, do not want this message talked about, so too bad. Here we go. God's Word is good. All right. Where was I? Uh, Yes, thank you, counsel. All right. Um, Christian discipleship. You see Paul offering discipleship to Timothy and how to respond to God's word. You see this uh, in Solomon teaching his son. There's wisdom and safety in a multitude of counselors. So I would encourage you, if you've got questions about, well, how does this fit with my past or my current situation. This is difficult for me to hear. If, if you have that, I would encourage you to find a godly person that you can talk to about this. Ladies, another lady, guys, another guy. F- find someone you can talk to, someone that's wise that can help you 
Obey the Bible even in your sticky situation. Now, that's a lot different than finding someone who will help you wiggle out from under the Bible. Don't find that person. Find the person that helps you trust in God's Word even in your sticky situation. Okay, I would offer uh, the help of the elders of this church, all seven of us. Again, there are a lot of wise men and women in this church that you know. So again, if, if there is difficulty with some of these passages, find people that will help you obey them even in sticky situations and help give you wisdom in that regard. But this verse says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal, obligatory, owed rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, because, and he, he talks about why now, he bolsters the argument, because the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, in different cultures, this would be shocking in our culture, 21st century, I own my body. Biblically, no, the Lord does. And biblically, your spouse has authority over your body as well. Strong words here. And we fear right here, oh no, there could be a male abusing that, taking that to its extreme and really responding to his wife in a very unloving way. That's true, and that should not happen at all. But what's equally shocking, and what would have been shocking in the first century, is for Roman culture to hear that a husband does not have authority over his own body, but a wife does. Christianity is the great, um, Christ is the great um, carer for men and women. Christ cares for women. So in a first century culture, Roman culture, where the men and their sexual preferences dominated the culture, which is kind of like today as well, here we learn, no, 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 a man's body isn't his own. His wife has authority as well. So both the man has authority over his wife's body, the wife has authority over his body. Now again, famous saying at Canyon Bible Church, it takes a whole Bible, a whole Bible to be a whole Christian. There are other passages which speak of a man caring for his bride and a bride caring for her husband. These other passages should all inform the marriage, the, the sexual intimacy in marriage, that relationship. In Ephesians, Christ gives himself up for his bride. There is a nurturing and a cherishing of a bride. So, uh, no man or woman is able to respond to this passage by saying, see, whatever I demand, whenever I want it. That's not the response. There's a nurturing and a caring. Even romance is something God-given. In Hosea chapter 2, God is said to lure his people to himself. There's a wooing there's a romance, there's an alluring that should be present as well. So there's a mutual love. It's not just these demands, well, you're mine, well, you're mine whenever I want. That's not what this is saying. It is true. We serve one another in this way, and the Corinthians needed to know that. But again, this is not an excuse to be heavy-handed. It's actually a reason to steward one another well and to care for one another well. A husband doesn't have authority over his own body. I'm sorry, a wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, same thing. The husband doesn't have authority over his body, but the wife does. Verse 5. 
So here's the command. Do not deprive one another. That word, again, another synonym for that. Do not steal from one another. Don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So don't, don't steal from one another. Give to one another what you're called to give to one another. Don't keep something from your spouse that they, because of God, have a right to have. Unless, for a limited time, and by agreement, you're in a fasting sort of state, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. What's that about? That's fasting language. Have you ever kept yourself from food for the purpose of devotion and communion with God for a time? Similar thing here. Sometimes you know what this is like. You're in a difficult situation. Uh, There are a lot of cares coming at you from all around, and and you just need to, I'm going to cancel some appointments. I'm going to not do this, not do that. I'm just going to get away and get with the Lord. I got to have some communion with Him. I got to talk to Him. I've got to get away from the hurried business of life, and I've got to focus on that. So Paul's saying that that could be a time where you mutually agree to stop engaging in sexual intimacy for a time, a, a limited time, Paul says, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, communion with God, thinking rightly about God, talking rightly to God, but then come together again because evidently the longer you prolong that, the more temptation could come so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice here in this section on marriage and intimacy, we learn a little one of the wiles of the devil, keeping married people apart so that he might tempt them with sexual immorality. Don't let Satan have his way. So one of the benefits of marriage is clearly that it's the place for sexual intimacy so that we would be guarded against sexual immorality. And then there's this side note. But before I get to the side note, let me just kind of hammer home with a couple of other passages the importance of marriage. Okay? Listen to Genesis 2, 23-24. God has set up an institution where a man would join with a woman, man and woman, male and female, would join together for the purpose, among other things, of sexual, uh, sexual expression, sexual intimacy that started right when He created man and woman. It's so interesting how this is like the first subject that came up when He created man and woman. Genesis 2, 23-24. Adam sees Eve. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's like me, unlike the animals. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, God says, and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's the sexual union. You leave and you commit to your spouse. Physically, Commit. That, that, those words of Adam there, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, that, that's poetry. Adam sees Eve and he breaks out into song. And God says, that's how it's supposed to be. That's right at the beginning from the creation of man and woman. Sexual intimacy is God's gift, God's idea. Now, again, we've seen that so corrupted, 
Sometimes some of us Christians struggle with that. We, we don't see the good part of it because we're so concerned about falling into sexual sin and sex is bad, some of our parents told us. That's not true. Sexual immorality is bad. Intimacy is good in the arena that God has placed it, the, the marriage, the home. Hebrews 13.4, a New Testament passage. Let marriage be held in honor among us all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Here we see again that marriage is to be held in honor and the marriage bed undefiled. Sexual intimacy within the confines, the protective confines, the good confines of marriage. Our world today is drunk on the removing of these boundaries. We just try to remove them everywhere we can. Removing the boundaries of marriage, removing the boundaries of male and female joining together. The world finds ways to disobey God's Word and to follow after their sinful passions and desires. But what I want you to see, I hope you see about God's character here in this passage, is that God is the one who gave this gift. God is the one who gave this gift, and He tells us how to use it for His glory and our own good. God's a good God. He gives us a good gift to use appropriately. So in the Bible, when you understand, when you read the Bible and see the character of God, you see God as a God of pleasure and a God of joy. That is who God is. That's who He's always been. Again, I told you about Genesis 2, 23 to 25. God creates man and woman. They don't have any clothes on, and Adam breaks out into song, and God says, that's how it's supposed to be. That's your God giving that. Don't let the ways that that has been corrupted keep you from realizing that God is a giver of good gifts. Some of you here might not know much about Christianity, and, and all you know is that God's against sex. Not true. Do not, please do not believe that. That is absolutely false. God's a good God who gives good gifts. But here's also why He's good. He tells you not to engage in it in a wrong way. And why does He do that? Because He's good. He's protective. He cares. Engaging in sexual immorality does not lead to life. It leads to pain, to scars, to death. And God protects from that. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope you realize that God is a giver of good gifts, and He also protects by giving His guidance and guidelines and boundaries to where that good gift is meant to be enjoyed. He does that because He's good. Maybe today would be a day where you turn from doing whatever you want, turn from the way the society does sex, and you come back and you say, I trust God. I trust Him with my life. I trust Him to call the shots in every area of life. When you come back to Him in that sense, when you turn from your sin in that sense, He forgives. Trust Him. He came, Jesus Christ came to die for sexual sinners, of which we are all. He came to die for sinners. And He came to change them and to give them life as they commit and follow and trust His Word. So, one of the benefits of marriage is that it is a place for 
sexual intimacy to be enjoyed and, and for sexual immorality to be guarded against. And then again, this side note on singleness, verses 6 through 9. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, and as we'll see, that means single. So Paul's saying, hey, I've got a thought for you. I think it's helpful for you to stay single like I am, but that's not a command. And again, he's going to talk about the benefits of singleness later on. We're not going to get that today. He's going to get to that. But then he says this, but each has his own gift from God. That word gift means literally grace gift. God has graced us with where he's called us to be, some single, some married. Each has his own grace gift, one of one kind, one of another. So some are single by the grace of God and some are married by the grace of God. Now, I believe that this is talking about the single person who, who wants to be single, who can exercise self-control sexually and, and is okay. Single until he goes home to be with the Lord or she goes home to be with the Lord. That's that, that, that gift. There are others who are single that, that want to be married. I think that's, that's something different. She's talking about the person who's happily single. And there's a place for that in the Christian life. Not every Christian has to be married. Jesus wasn't married. Paul, not married. He's not pressuring every single person to be married. Now, Paul highlights the goodness of singleness in this chapter, but elsewhere, as we know, he highlights the benefits of marriage and why that's so good. Again, think namely Ephesians 5. Paul's saying singleness is good. And he also says marriage is good. So we don't need to pit them against one another. Let's just take him for what he says. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Verse 8, to the unmarried and to the widows who have now who once were married, obviously, and now are single, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single, as I am. But when wouldn't you remain single? If you were single or a widow or widower, when you couldn't exercise self-control. Again, that's speaking of sexual intimacy. When that's something that you, that you were desiring, then the answer is marry. They should marry. Because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And with, with the context here, I don't believe that's talking about the burning of eternal torment, eternal fire. It's not the burning of judgment. It's the burning of passion. It's, it's the intense desire. So you don't want to have that intense desire with nothing to do about it. So if, if that's you with that intense desire, marry is the call. Now, this is helpful for those of us in the church that are married. Not all single people are pining to be married, and that's okay. So we don't have to play matchmaker with every single adult that's ever around us. Hi, what's your name? Betty. Betty, I noticed you don't have a ring. No, I don't have a ring. I've got a cousin for you, Betty. <laughs> Maybe Betty's not looking for your cousin, okay? So just on behalf of single people who have been um, maybe pressured that way before married people, not everybody has to be fixed up all the time. Maybe they are happy being single to the glory of God. Now, maybe there are single people who are looking for a spouse and do want to be married. Then, hey, the church is a great place to help people find godly spouses. 
So here's what I'd recommend. Just ask Him. Maybe not first. <laughs> okay, let's give Betty a little time. But at some point, hey, I, I don't know, are, are, are you desiring marriage? Oh, yes, I am. I may know of someone. You know, we can… Anyway, that's how it encouraged us in the church because Paul does say that singleness is good. And he'll get to why again later on in chapter 7. But Paul commends singleness. So let's be careful with our single brothers and sisters, okay? Now, a second benefit of marriage, verses 10 to 16. Marriage is the place for an unbeliever to be blessed. And I'm speaking specifically of a married person who's a believer who's married to an unbeliever. And Paul says in these verses that it's, it's actually a blessing for the unbelieving people in a family to have a believer there, a believing spouse. And, and he goes to great lengths to make this argument. He really fleshes this out. First, in these first two verses, 10 and 11, he's talking to the married and he's telling them not to get divorced. Okay, so, so to, to the married believers. So 10 and 11, married believers. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So, so he's going back to what Jesus has said and what Jesus has taught. You can go back to the Gospels and see these exhortations. When you're married, believers hear this, when you're married, you don't pursue divorce. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. God said it. Christ said it. The wife should not separate from her husband. And if she does, she should remain unmarried. So if you wrongfully divorce one sin, don't commit the second sin, then remarrying someone else. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Go back to that husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Same thing. Okay, so, so this is talking to a wife and to a husband. Don't pursue divorce. And if you do, for reasons that are not allowed, based on what the Lord has taught, do not remarry. And then verse 12, evidently he's talking to a different group of people, right? You see that? To the rest. To the rest, I say. And then he says, I, not the Lord. And right there, some people who want to wiggle out from under the Scripture say, ah, see, those aren't God's words. That's just Paul. I don't have to obey this. Whatever's coming next, I have to obey. What Paul means is that first exhortation, verses 10 to 11, that he just got done talking about, hey, don't get divorced. And if you do get divorced in an unlawful way, do not remarry. And he says, the Lord taught this, not me. Here, Paul's just simply saying, Jesus didn't address this while he was on earth. So I'm telling you now. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Now remember who Paul is. An apostle, we saw this at the, in the early stages of chapter 1. An apostle sent by God sent by Christ. When Paul says something here in these letters, it is inspired by the Spirit. We know that because Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. And the people Peter was writing to in 2 Peter would have known when you say Scripture, you mean words from God. So this is Scripture. This was chapter, or verse 12 is just as much Scripture as 10 and 11 are. Jesus himself taught in John 16 that he would give his disciples, his apostles, his spirit, and they would, be, they would have brought to mind the things that the spirit was teaching, and they would teach the churches. So, chapter or verses 10 and 11, Scripture, verse 12, 
Scripture. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So believing man has an unbelieving wife. Most likely, again, this is the early years of Christianity, this new faith that's spreading across the globe. So there are people who would have been married, and then one of them here in verse 12, the husband, would have come to faith in Jesus Christ, would have had Christ as his Lord, and he understands that what fellowship has light with darkness, but yet I'm in a relationship with, like Jesus said, a child of Satan. So should I just, should I leave? Should, should I be done and start over and find a believing wife? And Paul's saying no. Now again, for us, we know that. Oh, no, no, you're not supposed to leave. But for them, you can see why they'd ask that, right? Well, I'm a Christian and she's not. So should I get out and go back to singleness or get out and find a believing spouse? And Paul very, very clearly answers that. If a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And again, as he's done now two times already in this passage, he does a third time, he talks about the opposite being true as well. If any woman has a husband, believing woman is the idea, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So we put that together and we say, believing spouse with an unbelieving spouse, do not leave. If that unbeliever will stay married to you, don't leave. Stay. Verse 14, because, and here's the reason, here's the reason why you would stay married to an unbeliever. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Notice, the reason you believers stay married to an unbeliever is because of the benefits that it brings them. Notice how God is using your relationship for bigger and eternal purposes. Because the unbelieving husband, again, verse 14, is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Again, we understand that to be a believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So right there, you've got a believing spouse. Let's call him a believing man. A believing man, an unbelieving woman, an unbelieving wife. And you've got these children that they've had. Paul is saying, by them being attached to you in your home, they are made holy. Now, we know that there are different usages, uses for the word holy. It doesn't mean Christians. It doesn't mean you become a Christian by marrying a Christian. Got that? We clearly understand that. What, it, what holiness also means is unique, set apart, different. These unbelievers are different than other unbelievers. These unbelievers are in the home, living in a family with a child of God. And all the blessings that come to that child of God, they are connected to. What a privilege. Seriously, what a privilege. What a privilege to be in your home. If you're a son or daughter of King Jesus, what a privilege for people to be connected to you. We just read in Mark's, or Matthew 6 earlier today. 
one of the things that God has committed to you as his child is that he will take care of your food and your clothing. He will give you what you need. So you're in a home as a child of God and the heavenly father God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who owns everything says, don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothing. You will have everything you need. And guess who benefits from that? The other people in your home. Even if they are not children of God themselves, they experience the blessing of God through you. And Paul thinks that that's a big deal. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, what a privilege. They are holy. Again, we know this doesn't mean that they're saved, but they have a special place of blessing because they're in your home. I like what the writer Gardner says about this passage. He says, for children with a Christian parent or parents, the advantage of being in a home where the Lord rules and is worshiped, his word taught and understood, his promises explained, and they are brought up to know the need for faith and to worship is great indeed. What a privilege for a child to have a Christian parent. What a privilege for an unbelieving spouse, whether they understand it as a privilege or not, what a privilege for them to be married to you who God loves and has shown favor to and constantly shows favor to. They experience the benefit from that. Verse 15, but sometimes the unbelieving partner, the unbelieving spouse doesn't want to stay in the marriage. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Sometimes that's translated, let them go. If they want to leave, let them leave. In such cases, the brother or sister, the Christian spouse, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, again, earlier we read Christians, 10 to 11, don't get divorced. And if you do, don't get remarried. If you're, undivorced, if you're divorced unlawfully, don't get remarried. Pursue reconciliation. Here now, we've got an unbelieving spouse that wants to be divorced. And so the exhortation of the Christian is, let them go. Now, right then, that would raise a question. But then what do I do when they leave? And that's why this sentence. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So you could see a Christian who wants to honor the Lord saying, I'm not supposed to be divorced and remarried. But he, my unbelieving spouse, says the woman, the believing woman, he wants to leave. I got to hold on to him because I need to stay married. I can't exercise that self-control. I need marriage. I can't let them go. Paul's saying, you're not enslaved to them. Let them go. And my belief, along with many, many, many others, is that this is a call this is, this is Paul allowing a believing spouse to be remarried if their unbelieving spouse leaves. You're not enslaved. You can let them go. 
God's called you to peace. Don't keep fighting and saying, I'm never letting you. I'm never letting you. I know you want to go. I'm never letting you. Let them go. You're not enslaved. There are, you have the opportunity to be remarried. Verse 15. Verse 16. For how do you know, wife? So again, stay married to him, believing wife, if he will stay. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? So, so don't just hit eject because you're a Christian and he's not. If he'll stay married to you, stay in the relationship. Because how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? You might be a means of his salvation. Living with you, he gets a picture of the love of Christ. That may lead him to Christ. Or again, fourth time, the opposite is true. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Evidently, the apostles, because Peter says this also, Paul and Peter, writing by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, so God, God believes that when there is an unbeliever in the marriage and a believer in the marriage, that believer may be the means of that unbeliever coming to Christ. Evidently, marriage has evangelistic components to it sometimes. Some of you were led to Christ by your spouse. Any, anybody hear that true? Yeah, some hands are up. One of our elders, Byron. Byron and Mert, don't know if you know their story. They were living in uh, Wisconsin, and Mert was invited to a Bible study. They weren't Christians. Mert was invited to a Bible study, and eventually she became a follower of Christ. Byron still wasn't a believer. So you've got a believer in the family married to an unbeliever. Well, over time, Byron then joined one of the Bible studies that some of those men in the church had started, and he eventually is led to the Lord. That happens often, and God understands, and He he has even evidently designed marriage to be one where an unbeliever might find blessing and even be led to Him. So, marriage is a place for an unbeliever to be blessed and maybe even to be one to Christ, saved in the words of chapter, verse 16. So consider how an unbelieving spouse would benefit, I'm sorry, a believing spouse would benefit an unbelieving spouse. I want you to turn to 1 Peter 3 because I want you to see Peter talking about this as well. Some of you know this passage, but I want you to see the priority that God places on this. 1 Peter chapter 3. So 1 Peter 3 is written to, an, to a believing wife who has an unbelieving husband. And again, we know because Paul's done kind of the opposite is true four different times in our passage, the opposite would be true too. So believing husband, unbelieving wife. But listen, let's just walk through 1 Peter 3 for a moment. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, so they're not obedient to the gospel, they're not Christians, even if some of your husbands do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So you living a godly life may be what God uses to win your spouse over. 
they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and putting on of the jewelry or the clothing that you wear. Now, again, understand the passage in its context, please. Well, that lady at church wears earrings. I think she's disobeying the Bible. Okay, he's saying, don't let what you're being known for be external. Seek to, with your godly character, seek to win your spouse that way. Okay, verse three, or verse four. But let your adorning, what adorns you, what you're known for, what's beautiful, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So, so a gentle and quiet spirit, those two words together mean you are not troubled with what's troubling outside of you. So you can imagine an unbelieving or a believing spouse being married to an unbeliever. That would bring lots of trouble. That would not be easy. And so he's saying, you have a gentle and quiet spirit because of all the chaos that's going on outside of you. You be like that. Which, notice, which in God's sight, we talk about attraction here, which in God's sight is very precious. God looks at the believing wife with the unbeliever as a husband and sees all the ways he treats her and the ways that he really looks like his father, the devil, so often. And he sees, God sees her with this gentle spirit. She doesn't fight back with this quiet spirit, one that reflects trust in God, even as she gets all of the garbage coming to her, and she is beautiful to God. That's what this is talking about. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do, the, if you do good and do not fear. Notice, do not fear anything that's frightening. So you might be a believing wife with an unbelieving husband, and your friends might say, how do you go through that? That seems like that's so scary, this, the things that he says and the, this and that. How do you handle that fear? I don't fear what is frightening. <laughs> yes, it's frightening, but I have a certain trust in my God. And then again, husbands, likewise husbands, and this is where it's good to remember that because of 1 Corinthians 7, we don't just get to demand things from our wife whenever we want them. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Talk to her, listen to her. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. That's why I say you don't make these demands based on one verse of the Bible. You show honor. Show honor to the woman who's the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That's a, that's a word, phrase for marriage. They're heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So treat your wife well, and God will listen to you. You don't, the implication, he won't. Okay, so care for your bride. But again, I turned here because I want you to see the place of importance when there's a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. Hear God tell the believing spouse, hang in there, represent me 
Have a gentle and quiet spirit. I know it's going to be frightening. Hang in there. Maybe you will be a means to their salvation. They might be one without a word, 1 Peter 3. How do you know whether you might save your spouse, 1 Corinthians 7.16? So marriage is a place where unbelievers in the home may be blessed. Now again, final thing from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want you to see that God is the one who rules over sexual intimacy. He's the one that says how it's to be enjoyed, how it's to be protected and guarded. He's the one that rules over marriage. So I would encourage you to trust in what your God says. And also, again, for those of you, which is probably all of you, who have sinned in any way in this regard, divorce, sexual immorality, remarriage when it's not been allowed, whatever it may be, I want you to remember Jesus Christ came to forgive you. Take your sin to him and leave it there, knowing that he forgives. This is who our God is. I'll remind you again of 1 Corinthians 6.11. Some of you were sexually immoral. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, declared righteous, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus, one thing I know about him, he loves to forgive. He loves to forgive. So again, bring your sin to him, leave it there, walk in newness of life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your clear instruction. Again, there may be Father, objections or hurts or difficulties in obedience based on what this passage teaches. Give us wisdom to obey in sticky situations, to obey through sticky situations. Give us a trust in you as we seek to obey. And Father, I'm asking that you'd do what you so often say you'll do. Bless us for taking you at your word and obeying you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, now we'll ask the ushers to pass the offering bags for our weekly giving, worshiping the Lord in this way by giving.